1: Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Now, I've had Aaron Howerton on the podcast before. You may remember in episode 31. The musical murderer that I spoke to Aaron from the confines of the correctional facility in the United States of America, where he's serving a a life sentence without parole for the murder of another young man, which he committed and admits committing with, with co defendants. Aaron's been in prison for 27 years. And in that first interview, we talked about his childhood, we talked about the crime that he committed. The, the shooting dead uh, of one of his friends, and the destruction by burning the body uh, and the car in, in an attempt to to conceal the the evidence that would link him and his co-defendants to, to the crime. Aaron is joining me again today because we didn't quite finish the interview because he only has a, a set amount of time to talk from his prison cell on one of the prison phones so I invited Aaron to come back to finish our conversation so if you're listening to this podcast I would urge you to go back and listen to episode 31 the musical murderer where Aaron details who he is what he's done and where he's at now but I'm going to pick up the second half of that interview with Aaron who's going to call me from his prison cell This is a
0: global town-link, prepaid call from an inmate at Monroe Correctional Complex. This call will be recorded and monitored. If you wish to block any future calls of this nature, dial 7 now. To hear the cost of this call, press 8 now. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline this call,
1: hang up. Thank you. Aaron. Hello.
0: Hey, good morning, Rafael.
1: Good morning to you, my friend. How, how are you this fine day?
0: I'm good. Uh, grateful to be uh, uh, talking to you because yesterday we had a power outage. The uh, uh, lightning hit the building and it messed everything up. So, um, yeah, I was able, happy to be able to get through.
1: And and that's what can happen in prison. Prisons are so unpredictable. Um, well, look, thanks for, for taking the, the time to call me again because I know but we didn't quite finish the conversation that we started um, earlier this year. I've asked my listeners to go back and listen to episode 31, which is um, the episode that you and I talked about your childhood. We talked about the crime for which you're in prison for. We talked about the endeavors that you've endured during your time in prison. And when we came to the end of that interview, we we were just about to talk about you know what was happening in in your case now, but before we do, Aaron, I just want to, I just want you, if you don't mind, to refresh my audience, is is memory of where you are, why you're in prison, um, and how long you've been there. Just please, just briefly paint the picture.
0: Okay, well, it's, hey, it's good to talk to you too, and uh, I'm glad we're able to pick this up, and I thank you for this opportunity. And I want to thank the uh, audience and uh, all your fans, because you have many adoring fans. I want to thank them, for uh, giving me the time and their time, because time is one of our most uh, precious commodities. So I thank you all. So I came to prison in 1994, actually around the same time that you were being transferred to uh, uh, Maidstone Prison, I believe you called it.
1: It was Badestone Prison, yes, in in Kent. I I was in prison myself at that point, yes. I had been, I think, for six, six, seven years by then.
0: Yeah, so um, I came in 1994. I was uh, convicted of aggravated murder of a friend of mine. I was with um, some other teenage kids, a friend group, and um, one of the boys decided to... Uh, shoot my friend and I made all the wrong choices that I possibly could at that time being ill equipped unprepared not knowing what was going on really Um, but I've always taken full accountability for my actions and you know so I've been in prison now for 27 years uh, May 8th Um, so I just I won't say celebrated but I just passed my 27 year mark uh, here last week and uh, it's been a long journey Right now, I'm at uh, the Monroe Correctional Center, the old reformatory. It's uh, the second oldest prison in Washington State. It's uh, kind of a dungeon-like prison. It's uh, four tiers high and 40 cells long per tier, and it's uh, very chaotic and very confusing at times and frustrating and has a lot of challenges to it that uh, many men face here each day, and uh, not just the burdens of their sentences and the pain of missing their families but um having to do the the days in and out to routine and uncertainty each day so um so that's where
1: i'm at now and uh yeah well as i say we 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 talked in some detail aaron about the offense for which you're in prison for and, and why you've been there for 27 years let's talk about um, and I, I again i I urge my listeners to go back to episode thirty one to to listen to those details i don 't think it would be fair to to regurgitate everything we talked about when we 've already been down that that road when we came to the end of the last interview, you had recently been up on a parole um, board which um, rejected your your plea for for freedom. But you mentioned just before we got cut off that um, within 60 days, you were expecting, I think, to go back in front of the parole board or to go in front of a, a court hearing. What what come of that court hearing? Um,
0: so it's interesting. Uh, December 10th, I had a clemency hearing in front of our um, clemency board here in Washington, which is a five-member panel. And the victim's family was able to face me, and I was basically able to plead not so much my case, but my accountability and, you know, my sorrow and remorse for the things that I've done. And to give a great opportunity for the family to finally be able to speak. You know, in most criminal cases, uh, one of the most important things is that victims are heard. And sadly, they're not like they should be. So this was a great opportunity for them to to tell me how they felt and to express to the, the board how they felt whether you know they were in favor of me or not it's still that is an important part of the healing process that a lot of victims they just don't get so i was happy to participate in that sadly i was denied not for anything that i did wrong but for they felt that i needed to do more time for my participation and the things that i did um the prosecutor who i'd had lengthy discussions with prior to that he, he he suggested that recommended that he would like to see me do 30 years and so i think they probably denied me based upon that i think it was a foregone conclusion about the, um, the hearing itself and the determination and we were fine with that we kind of knew that going in i mean we were very hopeful that it would have been a better outcome but we'd accepted the fact that you know it might not go this round and uh the big thing is is to remain positive and you know try and The the hard part really is uh, I'm used to so much letdown over the years of appeals. And I know you can contest this to yourself, being disappointed that the people, you know, you think that have your best interests are the people that are failing you the most. And they're not seeing the picture, you know, that that actually happened, but own creative narratives in their own minds. And uh, I was disappointed by my family. That was the hardest part their disappointment and my girlfriend at the time and you know they're also hopeful they want me to come home my neighborhood and community you know embrace me they all want to see me home and succeed and it's been a long time and that's one of the hardest parts is is you know your family in essence becomes victims of what you've done even though it wasn't done directly to them but they're kind of their casualty there. It's it's very unfortunate. So I was denied and we were very hopeful anyway that they said uh, maybe in three years they would approve me if I uh, remained infraction free, kept doing what I was doing, mentoring young men, you know, helping them along in their journey in prison, uh, which I've done for so long. So we took that as, as kind of a blessing and a sign of hope. So shortly afterwards, very shortly after, there was a new case in Washington State. It was a state versus Munchke, And it basically, the Washington State Supreme Court decided that kids 18 to an age of maybe up in the upwards of 25, you know, their brain hasn't developed yet. And they're emerging adults and still making, you know, wrong choices, impulsive, you know, not thinking about consequences or how they affect other people. And kids are very impulsive. They don't think about stuff. I mean, we were all kids once and we know. And you can tell a kid, you know, not to do something, but the chances are that kid's going to try his luck anyway. Um, So this case came out and it was a big precedent. And they basically said that I am entitled to be resentenced. And this time, when I'm to be resentenced, that they will have to take into consideration mitigating circumstances and to justify a life sentence and what that means basically is that they would have to determine that I was incorrigible or I I couldn't be rehabilitated so this is a great opportunity for me and I've already been assigned a lawyer Um, I've been assigned a judge and my lawyers were up here the other day I was fortunate enough my awesome clemency attorney jessica mance she on her own dime defended me for over a year and she's still helping to this day she is just she is the best and they uh, came up here and we laid out a plan for uh getting hopefully my sentence vacated and then resentenced to you know something that is attainable and laid at the end of the tunnel a couple of things that you know we uh, are going to address that was never addressed before as far as these mitigating circumstances with my youth and, you know, the things that I've been through as a child, my teenage years, and the trials and tribulations. So those are all mitigating circumstances, and, uh, yeah, we're very helpful. They want to do a uh, forensic evaluation to make sure that I'm fit, and by all they should, I, I, I personally believe everybody should have one who comes into prison just to see where they're at but uh that doesn't happen so that's where we're at and we're looking in the next three months now um initially we thought it was going to be you know 60 days but then looking at it and all the steps that we have to take to get there you know the time kind of expanded a little but that's okay it's uh it's promising now, and it's very hopeful.
1: And 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 that's the key here, isn't it? It's it's hope, and it just makes me wonder. You've been in prison for twenty seven years. Your sentence is is to die in prison. You know, life without parole. So you're not on death row, but you are in death's prison, if you like. And how does it make you feel? Because it makes me wonder if you know the, the bureaucracy uh, and, and the way the criminal justice system in America is grinding in terms of these kinds of cases, do you believe that it's real hope, Aaron, or do you believe that this is hope that everybody has, but there are no real precedents for cases like yours where individuals have been sentenced to die in prison are are actually released when mitigating circumstances are put forward or or legal arguments are, are made? Is it real hope or is it false hope?
0: Well, you know, for me... I've always been hopeful about the future and there has been one time where I showed a moment of weakness and I I practically give up and you know I'm embarrassed to say it now but I had lost hope just from the mounting pressures and the disappointment and the rejections and you know when a person is rejected so much you know it takes that life from them and it's really sad I mean it's really sad you know just to see a person in the cage in general and then when you look at all the other other elements, you know, that just compounds it. But I have actual real hope. I mean, I am so, so hopeful. You know, my life is trending in the right direction. I've always thought it was. And one thing that I've always told myself is, you know, is that I want to earn each day and show forth, you know. And that's very important to me and so I feel a sense that you know I'm doing right by not only myself but my family my friends my loved ones and supporters and I hope it's a funny thing because I know a lot of guys in here that don't have it I have a friend my friend Jason Smith he uh he got 70 years for a couple of guns and a little bit of methamphetamines and you know they give him a two life sentences basically and it breaks my heart and But we are trending in the right direction, I believe, in justice reform in America. I mean, there's a lot of states that are taking, you know, great initiative like Philadelphia. And I believe Washington now with this Monchke case. And they're recognizing, you know, especially in youth that, you know, they're not as responsible. I mean, they need to take responsibility. We all do. But they're not as responsible because their brain hasn't developed. They're just not equipped so I think that gives a lot of guys hope, but there's still a lot of work that we need to be done, and and specifically uh, race relations and the disproportionality and the systematic racism that happens in America. I see it every day. And some days, you know, I feel like I owe it to step in their shoes and be treated equal as a lot of guys of color, because I see how they're treated. from Hispanics to African-Americans. And this is something that I've been actively participating in for many years because I've seen the disproportionality and this racism that exists that nobody wants to talk about. So when they do talk about these things, that's all it is, is chatter. There's never no action behind it. I actually put a a broad email out to friends and a couple lawyers um, here a year ago about, you know we can't understand what people go through unless we walk in their shoes i read your book raphael uh, notorious and i feel that in many cases that i've walked in your shoes i can't relate to the race part of it because i'm white and a lot of people would say that i come from white privilege i don't believe i came from white privilege i was very poor And But maybe I've been afforded opportunities that maybe men from color haven't, and maybe that's the privilege, you know, where I can be accountable for. But I looked at your book, and I couldn't believe it. I was overwhelmed by, you know, how racist them people were towards you and your mates. And I can understand your experience and your walk in prison and the, the emotions that you felt, but that element I couldn't because I couldn't walk in your shoes so I tried to walk in those shoes and be cognitive you know of my actions and view things from a different lens and I know you know what I'm talking about and you have an amazing story and I wanted to say that uh, I was very proud of you for what you did after you got out of prison and what you're doing now you're doing great things and I especially love the hunger Strike chapter got so many great elements to it so many things i related to and the emotions that i felt about being persecuted wrongfully in some ways and then um your experience and the frustration and the uncertainties in your w- prison walk and it was just amazing i it it was just surreal for me but we have many problems and we're hopefully trending in the right direction i think that there are many many people around here that are on the wrong side of justice and I think eventually that will come around but hopefully you know in enough time to save people's lives
1: yeah I I appreciate your feedback thanks for reading my book and giving it the kind of plug you just did but it's all it's all very real I wanted to just get a sense of, of your existence because I think although we explored you know, your musicality and and the stuff that you do in prison. And you talk about, you know, the fight for reducing this kind of life um, without parole for, for teenagers and people that are undeveloped. But I just want to get a sense, I want my audience to get a sense of the things that are taken away from a prisoner who spends 27 years in prison. And I want to ask you some very pointed questions, some rude questions, if you like, Aaron, but that's not me targeting you, it's me drawing out your experience which is it is in effect a a reflection of many other prisoners like yourself who've been in, in in prison for many many years um so you're speaking for all of these individuals but pointedly about yourself so let me just ask a couple of pointed questions you know you went to prison when you were a very young man just kind of caught up in in the wrong thing making bad mistakes but have you ever been in love
0: i have so i had a sweetheart when i came to prison she was offered. She had to go to a boarding school, and 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 I knew that, you know, I was potentially going to be in prison for a long time, and I kind of took the choice away from her, and we uh, separated. You know, I've had a couple of girlfriends uh, while I was in prison. Never no conjugal visits or nothing like that.
1: I, I want to pick up on that. I mean, how how? So you were with someone when you went to prison? That obviously broke down because of the length of sentence and where you were. Were being locked up. How did you then go on to develop further relationships while she was serving a prison sentence? Seconds remaining.
0: Well, it looks like I need to call you back, and then we're going to pick up
1: on that. Okay, I'm going to pause and wait for that return call.
0: Okay, I'll be right back. Stay tuned. (laughs) This is a global tel link prepaid call from an inmate at Monroe
1: Correctional Complex. Let's just pick up where we left off, because I'm conscious of, of how much time you, you have, and this is probably our last 20 minutes. So we were talking about how does somebody who's serving a, 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 the sort of sentence that you're serving in an American prison system develop relationships with, with women having been, you know, out of touch, out of, out of the groove, or whatever it is you call it. How do you develop relationships in prison?
0: Boy, you know, for uh, after my initial, uh, you know, my first sweetheart, um, you know, I kind of give up, and I pushed a lot of people away, um, but then after a few years, I had um, I'd made contact with somebody that I had known previously, and, and I wouldn't say it was very romantic, and I knew that it wasn't going anywhere, and we were just really good friends, but that kind of fizzled out, even though we are still friends. But it wasn't until, you know, last year that I actually found love for the first time in my life. I mean, besides when I was a teenager, this was it for me. And uh, I waited a long time for it.
1: How would someone like yourself who's, you know, in an environment where where your emotions are challenging and and all the other things, you know, you have to shut down in order to survive. And you you mentioned that in, in our previous interview that there were times when, you know, the best way to survive was to cut everybody out and you realised that was the wrong move because you weren't just protecting yourself, you were hurting other people. So how do you allow somebody into your life that could turn around and walk away?
0: Yeah, that's tough. And, you know, um, one thing I'd realised that uh, when I came to prison that I basically surrendered any say about, you know, anybody else about relationships and they were free to do as they wish but I had to give them that choice too and that was really hard you know you want to feel love and you want to love people and to to be neglected of that it's I mean that's what we're here for we're here to love people and to love each other and ourselves and do the best we can and the situation it's just it's not practical and I've seen so many relationships fail amongst my you know peers And but I've seen some of the best relationships that I've ever seen, you know, and men who've been in prison and been married for 30 years and done, you know, three decades or more in prison. It's really it it becomes about your mate and and what they want and how they feel. But you basically have to surrender to everything. And it's so important because, yeah, you forfeit that right. And the thing you can do because it's such a weird dynamic. Everything is dependent upon a routine in here. You know, the phone, the email access that we now have, you know, and we're so limited in visits. And a woman has to be very, very strong. Or, you know, if if it's a a woman, her husband has to be very strong. And you have to want it. And it has to be a mutual thing. and, And not everybody can do it. And I have experienced it, although it can be the toughest thing to have a relationship in prison it can also be the most rewarding. And my life this last year has been the most rewarding in that sense. Uh, finding that love, you know, for the first time. Um, and yeah, the love of my life I've found.
1: That, that's incredible. And it's, and it's so interesting to hear. In the American prison system, um, are you allowed conjugal visits or are you deprived of any kind of um, sexual interaction with, with a partner?
0: Most states um, don't have it. I am fortunate. Washington State does have it. You have to be married, and the new rule is you have to be married for a year to get those visits. So, yeah, I, I haven't been afforded that luxury yet, and that connection. But hopefully, I'll be out before that ever has to happen.
1: Have you not had sex in twenty-seven years?
0: Yep, twenty-seven years. Um, yeah, that's yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's a rough one.
1: But even even when I was in prison and I I talk about this in my book, which you would have read, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I was able to find a way, at least on one occasion where I was able to to have my my wicked way, if you like, uh, or to to regain some of that passion and, and desire. Have you never found the opportunity in all those years you've been in prison? I mean, even over a visiting table where you might snatch a touch or a feel or a kiss or something intimate? So,
0: um, actually, I've only kissed one girl since I've been in prison, and it was at a visit, and I felt really awkward, and it wasn't who I used to be. Things have changed. You know, there, this is kind of a weird dynamic, too, but I have had the opportunity, you know, if I really wanted to seize upon that, to, to have a relationship with, you know, I could have easily, you know, made a connection with a staff member. Over the years, you know, that was a possibility, but I chose not to for my sake and for that person's sake. Uh, but, yes, yeah, those things do exist. And I know men who have married cops, you know, they're up in the visit room holding hands, married, getting trailer visits now. But I just decided not. I told myself years ago that I wasn't going to get married in prison because I didn't want to do that to my partner. I since changed my mind. <laughs> But yeah, hopefully I don't have
1: to do that. And have you never had a relationship with another fellow inmate or, or gone down that route where, you know, seeking emotional affection from, from somebody in, in prison? Not, not a member of staff, I mean another prisoner.
0: No, I've never, I've never felt those desires. Um, I've had a lot of good buddies, but no, I just, uh, nope, never went down that road. And to each their own, and I support that, um, but it's not for me.
1: And what about things like food? Do you have access to cooking facilities where you can cook things that we can eat on the outside? Or are all your meals prepared by the prison other than what you can probably purchase from the canteen? I mean, or or can you provide yourself with a nutritious sort of meal on a daily, weekly basis?
0: I wouldn't say so much uh, nutritious, but, you know, we do have the canteen. And Washington State has a, a food package program, which is a huge monopoly here. They have basically three programs that they capitalize on, you know, for the industrial prison complex. And that's uh, that's the telephones, that's the J.P. Uh, communication media services, and then the food package program, which also includes personal property. They have a lot of items on there, but it's all junk. And I try not to spend too much because it's very expensive here. And, like, I feel terrible for uh, uh, the reason that the prices on these, if you have a loved one that's in another country and their exchange rate is lower than yours, you know, they can work, you know, a month's wage just for something that we spend or use within five minutes. Those things are not taken into consideration people in prison and, and then the jobs that we have you know there you make about 35 dollars to 40 dollars a month which in here you know you can get yourself some, some a couple of cases of soups and some soda if you'd like or some candy but there's no real nutritional value all the food is regulated and most of the food is actually from the industrial prison complex too it's made by inmates and mass production and it usually comes in bags and then served on a tray it's uh there is nothing this is funny raphael because years ago 20 some years ago we used to complain about the food in prison and i wish i knew then what i know now because i wouldn't complain because today's food it is terrible there's no nutritional value it sucks there's hardly any meat i don't like to complain but the food is probably one of the biggest things and uh, just how much they gouge how much money they take from us and our loved ones it's It's
1: really sad. How do you earn a living in in prison? And and have you been able to save money in all the years that you've been in prison in order to at least, when that day comes, if that day comes where you're free, you you have something that is your own?
0: Yeah, that's um, when any time you have money sent in from a loved one, they they take money, um, a percentage. For me, they take 45% of that money, which is a lot. 20% of it goes to cost of incarceration, 20% goes to legal financial obligations, and then 5% goes to victim's compensation fund. So a lot of guys, they have an extra 10% that they subtract, but since I have life without parole, we have no savings account. Now, I could save money if I had money, but I don't. And, you know, I've always depended upon the job that I work, and I've had many. I've done probably every job in the prison. And like I say, you only make 35 to $50 a month, and that usually goes towards hygiene products. And, you know, if you drink coffee, which I don't, you guys will do coffee. And some guys will even, you know, have a personal canteen store in their cell where they do two-for-ones for trading, and which is really interesting, and that's how they survive because – Jobs are very limited, and especially now with COVID, I had a job. I had one of the most trusted jobs in the institution as a property clerk. I handed out personal property to to fellow prisoners. And to have that job, you have to be honest, and you have to be trustable. My boss, Ray, you know, he trusts me. I've worked for him three times over the years, and uh, it's tricky to get a good job. And there's a limit on how long you can have that job. Or complacency. Sadly, we had a tragedy here about 10 years ago where an officer lost her life. Um, she was strangled by another inmate and um, they really climbed down on all the rules and about being in a certain locations for a certain amount of time. So, it's hard to save money. I am doing things that I'm trying to do. I'm actually um, at this point uh, I've been uh, trying to do a lot of writing and uh, hopefully uh, maybe I can get a a, a journalism job or some editorial job uh, which would be nice uh, I have a friend who, who does that actually from inside prison he writes books and he's published several books and uh, wrote a lot of articles for a lot of newspapers and publications uh, he's been very successful uh, mostly I think from his girlfriend who he met online
1: How did you meet and your current love?
0: She found me She was. Um, she has such a beautiful heart just a wonderful heart and she cares about people and she wanted to make a difference in her life and look back and, you know, 20 or 30 years and say that she did something. So she's a huge fan of podcast, huge fan of yours. And she, um, seen this podcast and they were talking about prison pen pals. So she had basically found, did a whole bunch of research about how to do it and how to be safe, what to look for. And she picked out, I think, you know, close to 10 people, and I was the first one. And when she met me, you know, she didn't see me coming, <laughs> and and everything changed from there. And yeah, I asked her to marry me, you know, only, you know, a month or more later, and uh, I knew. And yeah, she's very special, she's very smart, she's very beautiful, you know, she's fun, she's witty, she's so supportive and the fact emotionally she wants to be involved. You know, she cares about every little thing and she does everything to encourage me. And I try to give that back. And it's, having a relationship in prison is very, very difficult because, you know, we're limited on what we can do. So you have to find ways, you know, to, to, to ease that balance um, because she does so much more. I was just thinking uh, the other day she had wrote me an email and uh she had said that dating me was a full-time job and i didn't realize that raphael until i looked at all the things that she does and uh when i first met her i refused to let her help i i debated for it for over a month and then finally she she pressured me into it and she's just been great ever since and we're trying to build a brand together and a life together we're doing a lot of things and she's really uh discovered herself a lot more and gained a lot of courage things she'd never done or thought she would do she you know sit on legislative panels and trying to fix laws and working with attorneys and you know reaching out and talking to the administration trying to get problems solved and you know she sits on the family committee she's very very involved I'm so grateful for her um, i'm one of the lucky ones but she found me and it was just by the grace of God.
1: Yeah, it's it's an incredible story. I mean, you'll have your cynics out here who won't be able to understand how those dynamics work. I, I do. I get asked a lot of questions by people who listen to my podcast or, or follow my work. And one of those questions is, you know, do I? They ask me if I think it's a good idea for them to, to become a pen pal to somebody in prison. And, and obviously, I tell them that's a... A choice that they have to make, would you encourage people not not because they're looking for love, but simply to to offer support to to men in prison or women in prison like yourself, who, like you said, you never kissed a woman for twenty seven years you 've not been in love since the day you you kind of went into prison despite having a few girlfriends, and this is a has turned your hope and dreams a, a, around and giving you something more to aspire to. So would your message be to people? Would you encourage people to, to, to have a pen pal relationship with a prison? Because like you said, when you, when your partner started, you know, she did a lot of research and made sure that, that not only was she writing to the right people, that she was safe in doing it.
0: Yeah. You know, and specifically for, for my girl is, as she was just looking to help somebody and do somebody some good. And I think that's the mindset. If you decide that writing a pen pal is right for you that that's what you should have and keep an open mind and do your due diligence and you know I hate to say it but you know not everybody are good people in here and you have to protect yourself so and not to expose yourself you know after a while if you establish a, a pen pal relationship you know the things in the darkness will eventually come out and honesty will reveal itself but I highly encourage it I think it's good for for everybody. You're going to learn from it. It's going to give people hope and keep them giving them. One of the things about being in prison is that your sense of purpose and the reason why you continue each day is always in question. Why am I doing this? You have to have purpose. You have to have some. And Penthouse, they provide that for both, and they reveal things that you didn't know about yourself. Uh, from both parties' perspective, and you just never know. And um, you should always embrace every opportunity, you know, with a positive mindset and a good heart, and hope for the best. Um, but always protect yourself too, because you know there's a lot of bad elements. And uh, I do I highly I highly recommend pen pals. Um, I'm grateful for mine. Um, it's become so much more, and it's my life now. And I'm so grateful.
1: 27 years in prison, a lot has happened on the outside. I mean, you've talked about receiving email, so at least I know you're in tune with with that piece of technology. But over the last 27 years, a lot of things have happened. I mean, how exposed have you been to the realities of of the developments in, in, in the developing worlds, if you like, you know, in terms of technology, clothes? I mean, do you get to wear your own clothes? Do you have access to the internet? have you ever watched Netflix? I
0: haven't watched Netflix. Um, We're pretty limited on cable channels. Um, Can I call you right back?
1: Yes, sure. I'll I'll wait for that call. To accept this call, press five now. Thank you. Let's pick up. I was asking you about whether you'd watch Netflix, whether you'd been exposed to any of the kind of development technology in particular, but, but also fashion clothes. I don't know whether you're allowed to wear your own clothes or or you walk around in an orange jumpsuit. Tell me a little bit about your existence in a world that you've been deprived of for so long.
0: Okay, yeah, those are those are great questions, and I know that people want to know them too. And as far as clothes go, I'm not really exposed to any fashion. We're pretty regimented. It's almost military-like. Uh, we have uh, khaki pants and sweatshirts and white T-shirts and white shoes, and that's kind of the dress norm around here. Um, prior, you know, 10 years ago, uh, we used to have personal clothes, and we could order just about anything we wanted or have our family sent. but things have been so industrialized in prison that they got rid of those. They found it not to be cost-effective. Those might be coming back, but it's something that people are working on. But, yes, I'm not really exposed to too much fashion. And, you know, one thing that when you come to prison is you lose your identity. And having to dress like this all the same, it's just – a daily reminder of the lack of identity that we have and you have to make your identity in prison of who you are you know by the way you walk and that's kind of how people identify you it's like for instance people would say and look at me and they say oh Aaron yeah he's you know he's guitar player musician singer you know that's what he does and you know he mentors guys tries to be you know helpful in any way he can some guys, you look at them and say, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, he, he deals drugs or, you know, is full of drama or whatever. Hey, that guy, he's really big in education. But there's never too many names that identity is lost with that six-digit number. It's really sad. Communication technology has been really interesting for me because, you know, I was never exposed to it on the street. AOL was brand new when I came to prison, and I'd never been on that. So I've never been on the internet. It's only been in the last couple of years that we've been able to communicate through JPay. JPay.com is a it's a inmate services that provide email, uh, media like music and games and movies that you can watch on your little you know seven inch tablet that you can purchase, which has been great for me because that's where I do all my communication, I have my music and stuff, and I do all my writing on. The problem is is that, you know, for these services that uh, you have, like email, for instance, and like Zoom and stuff, we have to pay for that, and it's expensive, whereas your email is probably free or close to free. Even like apps, we have a few apps on our players, and they're very basic, but they cost us. And whereas there, you know, you can go to an app store outside in the free world now, I'm told, and get these amazing apps for free that do all sorts of things. And uh, I've actually had a couple ideas of my own about an app, but that's another story. You know, having this this media now for me, it's let me be very creative and uh, more quickly, and it's a lot more resourceful. The communication's quicker. I do like the old-fashioned, you know, pen to paper, but it has a little more meaning to it, a little more heart and soul. But email is just a lot more practical for me. So I've been able to experience this. However, also, you know, in previous jobs, I've done a lot of computer work where I've done some database stuff. I was a supervisor for uh, Johnny and Friends, which is a a wheelchair restoration company that sends restored wheelchairs throughout the world, third-world countries, and they give them to people, even mobility. And it's been a great experience for me. I took on this leadership role, and, you know, I basically run a multi-million-dollar business from inside prison, and I just took initiative and I learned and I started, you know, applying techniques that I learned and coming up with new ideas. And you know, you can't all do that on your own. You you have to have support from others. But that's one thing I've done, and and you know, I've been able to take some computer classes and I've done some audio video training, you know, and uh, I hosted a show and I, I was a teacher a music teacher for many years, where I taught music theory and instruments. And uh, yeah, so I've been really fortunate in Washington about my experience. But in that, I've had to fight for it, and I've had to earn it.
1: I suspect that it's also very limited as well, because you make it sound like you've had the freedom to do these things and, and expose it. But actually, it's still very much contained in the prison environment.
0: It is, and and like you too, you know, when you went to uh, Maidstone, and I believe it was, you know, you were playing the football, and you you had to fight for that, and you would refuse to to conform to, you know, a lot of the things that they wanted you to do, but, and you did right. I was very proud of you too. <laughs> Let me just tell you. But there were things that you fought for, and then when you did fight for those things, you said, okay, we're going to do a little give and take here. I believe that's, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah. No, that that that's absolutely right, and that's what you you have to do, Aaron. Let let me ask you the the common thing that people miss when they're they've been in prison for for a long time. You know, it might be sex, it might be interacting with people, going to parties, or just being able to to make a choice or, or a decision about what you're going to eat or where you're going to go. What what are the sort of things, if you can think of anything. That, that you miss most now obviously you miss the new love of your life and you'd like to build a relationship there and potentially have children I, I don't know so is that something that you aspire to to one day come out and have children is that something that is even possible if you remain in prison what other things do you miss the most
0: um so as far as children you know um, we've talked about it and if i were to get out we would address it but we'd want to plan something like that I wouldn't do that while I was in prison. It's too much of a burden um, on her, and it's just, no, it just wouldn't be fair. But outside, we we will uh, address that, and we're open to it. But things that I really miss and that I want to do, well, one thing that probably, you know, most people wouldn't think of, but I miss swimming. When I was a teenager, I loved to swim, and I loved to jump off bridges. I miss that a lot. And, you know, I have great ambitions for the future. You know, I miss sitting in a Chinese restaurant that I used to frequent office, and I would sit there and I would drink tea and I'd look out the window. I miss going down to the bay and looking at the sunset and eating, you know, Baskin Robbins ice cream. You know, I miss those little things, not just, you know, what you would expect. So many things, the smell of freedom, you know, the smell of even carbon monoxide, you know, I miss that a little too. (laughs) And the smell of oil, you just don't smell those. There's a lot of things that you just don't experience. Things I want to do, you know, um, it's interesting about the podcast because I actually bought into a podcast here a year ago and very ambitious about it. started writing programs and scripts and and trying to do this and coordinate, but then my partner fell through. I still have it, but it's something I could fall on because I do plan on venturing that. Speaking of which, I'd love to interview you someday.
1: Are you allowed, you're not allowed to, to broadcast a podcast from, from the confines of your prison?
0: Um, actually, I could. My maid and I, my, my fiancé, there's an app that you can use, and we were working towards that, but we have so many things going on. I've been writing a screenplay that, you know, I'm not done with, but I'm trying to get done with. And, uh, you know, working on a book, and i got a couple albums that um, I'm trying to release, that are not quite finished, but almost there. I'm just recovering from COVID that I've had since January, and that's been a that's kind of held me back and set me back. My brain's been a little foggy.
1: Has that been a problem across the prison that you're in at the moment, COVID? Yeah,
0: sadly, Raphael. Um, the administration they systematically infected nearly every pris- person in prison, unit by unit, and they made us go through this maze and it was crazy i had uh uh tested negative three times within a couple of weeks and then the one day that i came out a guard approached me while i was on the telephone to my honey and the next day i was feeling sick so i told them and they put me in segregation because i was sick and i was there for nearly two weeks and uh they converted our gymnasium into a quarantine unit They had wasted millions of dollars taking our education building and turned it into a quarantine unit just to find out that the fire marshal says it wasn't up to spec, and they systematically infected all of us. I tried to get help. Uh, My honey tried to get me help when I was in IMU. They give us no real treatment. Medical treatment in prison sucks. It's not treatment. It's attention. If you're dying of a heart attack, they'll probably give you chest compressions, but that's about it. Uh, our prison is notorious for people dying, um, from, you know, diabetes and cirrhosis of the liver and people are on dialysis. It's, it's a terrible place. Yeah. So, uh, COVID, you know, I'm, I'm still going to the long-term effects, you know, my breathing, you know, some headaches, uh, a little few changes, but I'm getting better each day. And, uh,
1: That's good to hear. I mean, I know that we don't have that much longer left and people will will be surprised to know that I'm talking to a, a man who's been in prison for 27 years, convicted uh, of the most serious of offences murder I think is second degree murder or first degree murder that you were convicted of and I know that your co-defendant served his time and has got out and he was the one who pulled the trigger etc cetera, etc cetera. and I do encourage my listeners to to go to the first episode episode 31 to listen to to your your harrowing story what, what's left for you to say, Aaron? Because I think people have got a good picture of the kind of man that you are today. What, what's your final message to my listeners?
0: Well, it's up to us to make a difference in not only our lives, but the people in the lives around us. And, you know, a lot of people are in places where they can't do that and some are not. But I think uh, a good message to live by each day is to try and earn it, try and be thankful for that and help others. And just be a good steward of every opportunity. I have something that I tell my honey all the time, and I make her repeat it to me. <laughs> and that's, you know, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And uh, I firmly believe in that, and we should all strive for that. I know that uh, my journey is long and far from being over. I plan on doing many good things for my community and just hopefully around the world. And, uh, you know, ending mass incarceration and prison reform. There's a lot of people and academics and scientists working on it, and I want to be a part of that solution. Um, It's been that way for many, many years, and I know you're doing the same in many areas. Something that uh, I've seen in your book is you had said, hey, I'm looking for these type of people and uh, join me in my foundation. And and I just wanted to say I'm that type of person that's my mindset, and uh, these are the, the systematic changes that we have to make for our survival and the generations to come and it's very important that we're all present and participate and uh yeah that's uh that's kind of how i live my life
1: why do i mean this podcast is all about second chance why why do you believe that you should be given a second chance aaron
0: so i believe that um i made some bad choices yes I believe we all should deserve a second chance, or at least a look at a second chance, an opportunity to say, hey, this is why I believe I deserve a second chance. I do believe in earning it. I think I have earned it, and I'll continue to do that each day. I think I'm more of an asset um, in society, in my community, than I am in here, although I can do many things in here, and I have. I think uh, my contributions are much greater in the outside world. You know, I grew up in here from when I was a teenager that made a couple bad mistakes. And since then, I've tried to redeem myself and be the best I can for everybody in every opportunity. And I believe everybody deserves a second chance, if not their first chance. And in a lot of ways, you know, I kind of feel that when I do get out, because I believe I will, that this will be my first chance and I'm going to capitalize on it. And I'm going to earn it and I'm going to prove everybody right that uh, the people that made the decisions to support me and love me, that, you know, I'm going to earn it and show them, you know, that's how you do it. You show it by action and not just words.
1: Well, it's good to know that you have these aspirations and dreams and it's giving you purpose. But the reality right now is that you are in a correctional facility. And just, just to remind my audience, when we end this phone call, where will you go? I mean, you'll go back to, what do you call it, a cell, a a prison block? I mean, and just describe, just to remind people, the environment that you've lived in for the last 27 years.
0: So our environment is very medieval, if you can imagine. It's bars and concrete, and it's four tiers high and 40 cells long. I live in house on the second tier, 208, and uh, it's very small. And you know, it's very cramped. It's, it's barely enough room for one man. And imagine yourself go in your average size bathroom at home or pantry and shut the door and turn the light on and touch the walls. And that's what I live in uh, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And uh, it's very intimidating. It's very sad when you look in or out of what I call a cage. And it's very menacing and dehumanizing and humiliating. And, you know, we have these commercials in America about dogs in cages on TV that have been abused. And then you look in one of these cages and it's basically the same picture, except it's a human being.
1: It's a sad state of affairs. Aaron, look, I I wish you all the best. And I I hope that after you've done your time for the crime that you've committed, that the system deems you um, fit enough to be released because no child should be, in my view, um, sent to prison for life with with no parole. Everybody, if you're going to be punished or rehabilitated, whatever your view is, there are alternatives uh, as well, and giving somebody back their freedom is is key to the rehabilitation or alternative justice type programs so all that 's left for me to say is thank you so much for spending your money your 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 precious phone time away from your loved one talking to me and sharing your story i do appreciate your time aaron very much and i'm sure people are listening to this there won't be everybody will be wishing you the best because they might think that they should have thrown away the key but i'm sure the majority will believe that that you do deserve that first chance that you you crave so much
0: yeah you know and if i could say just one last thing i want to say thank you to you and all your audience and just for listening and taking the time i appreciate this my loved ones appreciate this and You know, there's a quote by a Washington State Supreme Court justice. It's very short, and if I may read it, it says that we should join the national movement favoring release upon a showing of rehabilitation and inject into our sentencing practices the exercise of mercy, compassion, and the fact that we not know a person's capacity for change. And that's that second chance.
1: Powerful stuff.
0: Yeah, very powerful. And uh, thank you, Raphael. And I hope this isn't the last of our uh, encounters. And we will keep you updated. And um, we'll be looking to see you or hear from you again. We really appreciate you. I want to say again, I'm very proud of you for your own journey and your own successes. You've done great. You represented well. And you survived and overcome. You're very resilient. This is a blessing for me. And you've been a gracious, you know, uh, supporting me and uh, very grateful for you.
1: And, and that's what I hope part of my journey does. It gives people hope that there is another side to to, to everything. Of course, my situation was very different in that I was wrongly convicted and and whatnot. Um, uh, and and so the challenges were were very different. But I'm going to let you go, Aaron. And, and and I say get back onto what needs to be done. But I've got to go. Aaron, take care. Thank you so much for speaking to me again. And, and I do encourage my listeners to listen to episode 31 once more because Aaron's story is worth listening to. Thanks again, Aaron. Take care and good luck.
0: Thank you, Raphael. Bless you and yours. plus free shipping on orders over $60.